Hello, everyone. Welcome to Professor Jamerson's podcast. This is African American Studies, week three. We're talking about the foundations of African American Studies. And really, we're going to be talking about why we're here, why is this class being offered, and why are you taking it? Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for this week's podcast. Um, I don't have much of in the way of logistics. Um, I will say, actually, that I will be um, available for your um, Zoom small group meetings tomorrow. So if you want to email me, um, actually, I would really like it if you email me your Zoom links so I can maybe check in, see how small groups are going for tomorrow. Please keep me informed on how these are going. If you have any, if you're having difficulties like reaching your group members or difficulties figuring out what to talk about, just uh, reach out to either me or Amy. Um, but I will want to check in with you all a little bit uh, tomorrow for your small group meetings. Um, that's about all I had. Um, you're supposed to have a reading quiz this week, I think, but I think that some students still haven't gotten a textbook. So if you still have not gotten your textbook, please email me as soon as possible. I will send out an announcement about this as soon as I finish up with the podcast. But we may need to figure out some alternative arrangement for the reading quiz this week if textbooks are still an issue. Normally, I'm not uh, very lenient about this, um, but I just know that the postal service is is just a big mess. So we're just going to do what we can. These are weird times, yada, yada, yada. All right. Um, So for this week's reading, I will be talking about Chapter 1, Foundations of African American Studies in our textbook. I think it's really important for us to kind of, you know, we've talked about some of these foundational aspects of African-American identity. What about some of these foundational aspects of the class that we're in, African-American studies? The fact that we even have this class offered at Virginia Tech and at universities around the country is the result of, of a history of struggle to get these classes included into higher education curricula. And, and, and that story, is itself or a microcosm in many ways of the story of of our understandings and our treatment of racial difference and of African Americans in the United States. And so this becomes an important lesson for us, not just because we're sitting in this classroom, but the notion of African American studies being accepted as a legitimate part of a higher education curriculum um, is itself a microcosm of the history of racial struggle in the United States. And and our authors um, start off, right, with this notion of African-American. What do we mean by African-American? How is it different than black? What you'll notice um, as I move forward in this class is I will use the terms African-American, black, almost interchangeably. Um, There will be perhaps some subtle differences when I'm talking about, for example, politics or uh, demographics or anything like that. I will use Uh, the term African-American black, I will use more in my discussions of culture or aesthetics or sort of uh, uh, more abstract kind of principles that cut across sort of nationality and uh, cultural lines. And our authors sort of, you know, um, President Barack Obama, right, identifies as black, but of course is not just African-American. Um, he has Kenyans, Kenyan origins, also right, multiracial, spent a lot of his time in Hawaii and Indonesia, was raised in his white grandparents' household in, in Kansas for a part of his life. Um, 
and yet identifies as African-American, as black. Um, it's important to note, and our textbook says this, that blackness is, is a global phenomenon, right? There are black people all over the world. And in and, and sort of defining the criteria of what this textbook is about, um, they say that though, is it, though it is important to recognize that variations, and here I'm on page one, um, that variations in contemporary constructions of black and African-American racial identities, African-American studies addresses these issues. So there's a lot of ways to look at what it means to be African-American, but this textbook addresses these issues from the vantage point of the historical experiences of the modal descendants of Africans who were forcibly kidnapped, enslaved, transported to the Western Hemisphere, and ultimately relocated to the geographical space that later became designated as the United States of America. So the descendants of people who were captured and enslaved in Africa and brought to what is now the United States. So contrast this with, remember, Ifa Etoroma talks about much of the black Canadian population actually moved to Canada from the Caribbean. So they themselves are the descendants of slaves, but the descendants of slaves that ended up in the Caribbean and in many in many ways stayed in the Caribbean, therefore developing their own distinctive cultural pathways, right? That that would distinguish those groups, for example, from the African Americans, which we're talking about here, right, in our textbook. So I just want to kind of point out these these kinds of subtle differences for us moving forward. And our authors go on to talk about what makes African Americans uh, a unique population, not just um, in the context of um, the development of the United States, but but historically from the perspective of human history. Right here on page two, they say history provides no other record of any other people who were captured, shipped thousands of miles, and sold like cattle or who endured 400 years of enslavement and racial degradation, yet survived, achieved, and progressed in the same land and in the same present and in the presence of their former enslavers. And 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 what they're pointing to here is 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 this idea that we're going to be using moving forward when we talk about the African American experience. And and this is an idea that that um that I first read about from Patricia Hill Collins, and she's the first one who I kind of um, who kind of spelled this out for me. But but she talks about African American identity, specifically African American women. But I think with African American identity, this works just as well. Uh, what she calls the, the dialectic of oppression and activism. And so when we think about the African American experience, yes, oppression is a big part of that, but so is the struggle against that oppression, and it is this constant sort of struggle and 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 I've often I've heard it referred to as the struggle right capital T capital S the struggle against uh, racial oppression has been a, a, a motivating factor and a, and a and a primary element in the creation of African American identity and it, and it is rooted in this historical specificity this uniqueness right this 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 um, incredibly tragic yet unique historical um, context. The second section in our textbook opening chapter is called racial identification. And here, you know, the first section we talked about, who do we mean when we talk about African-Americans? And, and the second section is about the term African-American itself. 
How do we refer to peoples of African descent in the United States? Where do these terms come from? And I think it's really interesting, and this is an important point, that, that African Americans didn't name themselves as a group, were not afforded the ability to name themselves as a group officially in the eyes of, for example, the U.S. government until the 1960s in the Civil Rights Movement, up until this time, all the terms that society used to refer to African Americans were imposed by whites. Negro, for example, or colored, or our textbook uses even worse ones, including the, the, the N-word, which, which I will never say. Um, you will never hear me say that. Um, I will say Negro in the context of speaking about Du Bois' work because that's the terminology that he uses, for example, and this was the terminology that was prevalent, especially in academia up until the 30s and 40s. So you will hear me use that only in the context of those discussions. But we also have a little bit uh, more of a background in terms of the notion of blackness and its associations in Western thought with uh, evil, with otherness, with uh, danger, with the unknown, um, et cetera, et cetera. And here on page two, the, our authors say, in Western and European historical thought and folklore, both the color and the word black have negative and ominous connotations. And that's not, and that's, that's a specific to Europe. For example, in India, um, you were white to funerals in Europe, you were black. So, so this is not, this is not a cultural universal, an association of blackness with evil or danger. Um, it's, it's more of a European thing. The European concept of the, of the devil is black, for example, um, you know, in, in thinking about Christian, traditions. And moreover, it has been easy for white Americans and Europeans to associate negative connotations of blackness with the dark-skinned peoples of Africa because of this sort of cultural meaning of the color black in European um, history. Furthermore, as a religious rationale for the unjust and oppressive treatment of the African people, whites introduced the biblical myth of Noah's son Ham, in which God willed that Ham's son and all of his descendants be black and banished into the depths of Africa, which for Europe at the time was just Egypt. Okay, so I'm not sure how many of y'all are familiar with the story of Ham in the Bible. Uh, so Ham was one of Noah's sons, um, maybe one of his preferred sons. Noah had many sons. And of course, we know the story of Noah um, builds the ark because God is upset with uh how humanity is descended into sinful ways. Noah is the only righteous one left. And so God's like, look, I've got to, I've got to do a kind of a, a redo here. Um, I'm going to flood the world. You can build this big boat. You can save all the animals, right? Because you're faithful to me and, and, and everything will be fine. And Noah's like, all right, all right. So he builds the boat, um, you know, still not sure, right? His faith is tested, right? And so this is a very nerve wracking time. Um, you know, 40 days and 40 nights of rain, and they get into the ark, the ark saves them, and they're sailing along. And I think it's just a few days of just uh, um, where they don't see any land at all. But finally, um, I think a dove flies up with an olive branch, and they find the land. And they land the ark, and everyone is very happy. And Noah is just overcome with joy, right? He's just so happy. But he's also, right, he's got a lot of stress to get off. So he ends up, um, you know, growing some grapes, taking the grapes, 
and making wine out of the grapes. And then he proceeds to get very drunk off the wine that he makes from the grapes that he grew on the ground that he's just recently found after this great flood. Um, he gets too drunk and he passes out naked. And one can imagine maybe he got sick or something like that. Um, and his son Ham finds him. And this is Ham's sin, right? He, Ham should not be allowed or should not, should have known not to look upon his father in that state. And Ham is then shamed by God for shaming his father in that way and shamed with this mark. And, and that this story that I just told is the basis, sort of the theological basis of understanding race and blackness in and, and you remember how we talk about this historical progression of race in this early sort of formulation of racial difference as Europe is moving into Africa, for example, and colonizing and setting up these forts and trading posts along the Western coast. It is that myth that then becomes transformed, right? It becomes one of the first sort of theological explanations, right? If we want to understand something, we go right to the Bible right, in this search for knowledge. One of the first theological understandings of race comes out of the story of Ham, whose only, as far as I can tell, his only, uh, his only transgression was um, catching his dad get too drunk. So sorry about going off on a little tangent there. I do think it's important to kind of, I mean, they talk about the story here in the textbook, but I think it's, it, it's helpful to know a little bit more of the details. And so the term black actually becomes reappropriated, right? African-Americans take the term black back from that, right? Marcus Garvey had a lot to do with that, as our textbook talks about. Black is beautiful. Black is bold, right? It's something to be prideful of, something to not be ashamed of. And, um, and this, this begins to happen during the civil rights movement. Um, you know, please refer to me as black and not as colored, for example, or not as a Negro. Um, and then... So that happened in the civil rights movement. And then our textbook talks about the origins of the term African-American. This comes, this is a little bit later, right? This, this happens during, um, I think in the eighties, but I think is, uh, they, they credit the Reverend Jesse Jackson, a prominent black political figure. I've actually seen him once. Um, who suggested that, who suggested at a meeting that all blacks be identified officially as African-Americans in Jackson's word, words, to be called African-Americans has cultural integrity. It puts us in our proper historical context. And this is something I think that uh, that our authors believe in very strongly too, right? Um, one of the big questions if we look at um, African-American studies over time is exactly where is the Africa in African-American? What, what, um, what legacies of that African culture, which were systematically um, or attempted to be systematically wiped out through the institution of slavery, what elements of this cultural legacy are still um, within the African American population? They have some not so nice uh, words for the term minority and don't think that that should be an adequate expression of African American status or position in society. I do think there is such a thing as minority status. It's not just a racial thing. I don't like the fact that minority group is, is too often equated with racial groups. Minority is a status. And so women occupy minority status. LGBTQ individuals occupy minority status. Disabled people, uh, so on, occupy minority status. What else? What else? 
All right, I'll be moving on to some of the other foundations of African-American studies, including sort of how to define it, the scope, purpose, and objectives, this next big section in our chapter. So in the world of academia, it becomes important to define things, and it becomes important to have sort of definitional criteria, so you know sort of the boundaries of one field and, uh, you know, how it meets the edges of another. You know, where does physics end and math begin, for example? Um, this becomes quite a tricky proposition when you are trying to focus a field of studies on a specific group, which intersects with all these other different fields of study, such as African-American studies. Um, our authors define African-American studies as a field of study that systematically treats the past and present experiences, characteristics, achievements, issues, and problems of black citizens of the United States who are of African origin and background. Right, going back to their definition of African-Americans in the first place. And they furthermore say that it does not begin with African enslavement in America, but rather with their heritage and ancestral roots in Africa. And indeed, that is what we will be doing in this class. I think in a week or two, uh, I think next week even, we will be talking about precisely this, the Africa and African-American. We will be talking about Western African civilizations, Western African contributions to world history and the conditions that led to the African slave trade. Um, we have a much more nuanced definition here uh, offered by Vivian Gordon here on page four. Black or African-American studies may be defined as an analysis of the factors and conditions which have affected the economic, psychological, legal, and moral status of the African in America, as well as the African in diaspora. And so here we're using much more specific terminology that would be uh, much more directly about the African-American experience. Not only is the black, is black studies concerned with the culture of African, um, Afro-American, of the Afro-American ethnic as historically and sociologically defined by the traditional literature, it is also concerned with the development of new approaches to the study of the black experience and the development of social policies. There's that activism part, right? The development of social policies which will impact positively upon the lives of black people. And here's another reason why African-American studies is different than physics or math, right? Physics or math isn't so much about making physics or math better or conditions for physics or math better in the same way that African-American studies, one of the goals of African-American studies is to make the world a better place for African-Americans. And so there's inherently some, some value-laden aspects to a field of study such as this. And this is one of its main critiques, both in the academy and sort of outside, right, in the, uh, in the, in the cacophonous walls of our political um, discussion right now. Um, and so this is what we mean when we talk about African-American studies, a couple definitions there. Um, what does African-American studies look at? Um, you can't just say, well, it looks at African-Americans, you know, like black people in America. Um, yes, that is true. But in order to sort of understand the African-American experience in a holistic way, we have to necessarily take, and this is a reference to one of the words here in the title of our textbook, a transdisciplinary approach to the study of African-American life, culture, history, and experiences. And if you look here, right, moving on to page five in our textbook, um, they talk about all these different fields of study, 
right, that feed into our understanding of African-American life. First, we have historical increase. Second, we have sociological topics. Third, we have psychological topics. And I'm not going to get into all these. But our textbook does does this in a very detailed way, and that's one of the things I like about it. Um, fourth, we have cultural studies or cultural dimensions, right? Um, so just some examples. History, right? We've been talking about that. Where is the African, African-American? Um, in many ways, we're talking about a neglected or forgotten history, a history that um, has been purposely um, marginalized. Sociological topics, right? Black families, um, interpersonal relationships, gender roles, racism and discrimination, um, educational uh, achievement, community institutions like churches, psychology, um, oppression, socialization, personality development, alienation. Um, we talked about historical trauma. This would fall under the realm of psychological of the psychological as well. Cultural dimensions, poetry, dance, music. Black aesthetics, black food, right? A black house party, okay? Um, in five and six, finally, political and economic dimensions of the field of black studies. And we'll be talking about these as well. So why, right? Why black studies? Moving on in our chapter, African-American studies warrants particular academic interest. Why? Because. It is a branch of knowledge that was deliberately slighted or expunged from the American scheme of education. Because we have neglected it on purpose to maintain a specific system of racial hierarchy in this country, right? Education and ideas are very powerful in the minds of their wielders and and as Foucault would say, the way that education controls the way that we think. And, and this becomes a very potent form of power for those, um, for those who have it. So this is why we have African-American studies. And when we think about, you know, when we think about this, I want us to think of this term counter narrative, right? This class offers a counter narrative to uh, narratives of uh, whiteness at the center of civilization, for example, that you find throughout your uh, early educational years, for sure, on up through high school, but you also find at the collegiate level as well. And so this class is a counter narrative, a counterweight to, um, to that kind of epistemological dominance. Education is a process of learning and development that influences the character of human interpersonal relationships. Uh, this class and classes like it, like American Indian Studies, I believe, are tools for the production of empathy. Not just empathy between um, ourselves and, and the people around us, but, but empathy for, for a collective and, and, and for the society that we live in. And excuse me, I think my kid just got up out of bed. So our textbook moves from uh, discussions of sort of the foundation for African-American studies to sort of a, more of a philosophical approach and, and, and really chasing the sort of genealogy of a course like this, right? A course like this doesn't just pop up out of thin air and, and you know, you sign up for it and, and take it. Um, it's the result of um, what, according to our authors, over uh, about 200 years of development. Right, the, the earliest of these 
black philosophers that our textbook discusses here is David Walker, right? Who writes, um, who writes a very, very famous text in the 1820s. Um, David Walker's appeal to the colored citizens of the world, really one of the first, um, a radical anti-slavery text, really using calling out the hypocrisy in Christians who would enslave others, for example. Um, and it really was a wake-up call to what was then a nascent, right? A still very small sort of abolitionist movement in the United States. But I want to back up a little bit, right? We talk about black philosophy. Um, what are we talking about? Um, you know, is it different than European philosophy? And according to our authors, is it different than white philosophy, for example? And according to our authors, it very much is different than white philosophy. Um, really starting here on page nine, African-American studies does not attribute the basis of its foundation in philosophy to any of the classical European, Greek, and Roman philosophers, right? This is not, this is not what, what this is. This is not our foundation, nor to medieval philosophers who were persons of a leisure class sustained by a rank and order system of feudalism. Aristotle, Plato, and others wrestled philosophically with the ontological and theological facets of human existence. I'm still quoting, and here our authors for this textbook will have their moments when they're talking about whiteness, especially sort of white intellectualism. Um, and they will be sarcastic, and here, and here is one example of this. They write of Plato and Aristotle somehow in their profound musings. They theorized and developed a rationale for human servitude and subjugation based on superiority and inferiority of biology, heritage, values, and culture. The reasoning of these early white European philosophers provided the intellectual basis for everything that came afterwards, including the great philosophers such as Hegel, who Karl Marx disagreed with. But, but basically all these European philosophers would justify sort of a hierarchical social order um, with certain groups predestined or preordained to be at the top based on the need to keep society sort of staying the same so that society would not be thrown into chaos. And so master-slave dialectics become important in that sense. You need to have people at the top and people at the bottom. You need to have inferior beings and, and superior beings in order to have a stable society. Um, and this is one of, of a, it's a long-running assumption within Western thought that this should be the case. Hegelian and Darwinist philosophies and theories, for example, and so not just Hegel, but also Darwinism and social Darwinism, which we talked about last week, um, are all part of this tradition going back to Plato and Aristotle. Okay, African-American studies, by contrast, is significantly antithetical to the racist social theory of European philosophers and intellectuals. Here we're not talking about a Eurocentric philosophical foundation. In African-American studies, we want to think more about an Afrocentric philosophical foundation. We'll talk more about what that means as we move forward this semester. But very simply, um, when we talk about Afrocentrism, we are looking at all social phenomena. We are looking at the entire world through the lens of peoples of African descent, through the historical experiences of peoples of African descent. And what you end up with is a very different story, a very different narrative, a counter narrative, if you will, to the history that we're presented with in predominantly white educational institutions. 
So I did want to like point out the sort of uh, differences and in, in even in even the, the abstract sort of philosophical origins that this class adopts versus uh, many of your other classes may be adopting. For generations, many black Americans have had to interpret the world from an oppressed state and within a hostile environment. This is something that Afrocentrism seeks to, as a mode of thinking, seeks to address. However, the thought and perceptions of black intellectuals are not any less profound or valid simply because they may express social protest or racial vindication. Right, just because uh, black intellectuals and philosophers are saying stuff that white folks may not want to hear doesn't make their ideas any less valid. In fact, it may add validity to them. So what do we mean when we talk about black philosophers? Right, we're not talking about as as uh, as our authors talk about here the, the in a traditional sense of philosopher as, a, as an educated a person of leisure who kind of sits around thinking of cool stuff all day. Right, that that is a very much a philosopher in the European sense, um, but uh, a philosopher from an Afrocentric sense is someone who's who's lived the struggle. For example, the purpose for the purposes of African American studies, the term philosophy or philosopher must not, and I'm quoting here again, page ten must not be defined or perceived totally from the scientific ordeal or value neutrality standard, right? This notion of science and objectivity of European scholars. Remember, we're taking a value position here. White American and European and European scholars or intellectuals traditionally have viewed African-American and African philosophic perspectives with disdain and regarded them as insignificant relative to the so-called universal learning and knowledge, which of course is couched in Eurocentrism which is a European-specific term for ethnocentrism. Black writers and intellectuals generally, quoting again, have not been concerned with Eurocentric futures and abstract social and political theory. Instead, going back to this dialectic of oppression and activism, they have concentrated more or less on philosophical subjects relating to protest, race survival, and liberation. Their perspectives and concepts mirror the true socio-political and economic status of blacks in American society. Their philosophy speaks for their people, in other words. These philosophies understand the oppression faced by the people that they're trying to describe or understand or, or, or theorize a better existence for. Because that's what a lot of this philosophy is all about. Right, a lot of this abolitionist philosophy, the first wave of black philosophers, right, comes out of the abolition movement, imagining a future where slavery doesn't exist, right? And all of these philosophical and there's differences, right? Uh, uh, there were not all abolitionists thought that the abolition of slavery should happen in the same way, for example. But that's the theme running through it, right? This dialectic of oppression and activism that starts with identifying a problem and then imagining what it would be like without that problem. So I want to start kind of wrapping up to, uh, this week's podcast. I do want to spend just a few minutes talking about these two waves of black philosophers that our textbook talks about. This is not the kind of class where I'm going to ask you to memorize a whole lot of stuff, but I do want you to be familiar with kind of who these people are and um, 
and a little bit about their contributions to the development of black studies. As I said before, with these abolitionist thinkers, it's all about, you know, focusing on the evils of slavery and ending this, this terrible institution. Um, and we all have, we have different means by which people do this. David Walker write, writes a book, Sojourner Truth, doesn't know how to write, for example. And so we use what we have. Sojourner Truth apparently was a very powerful speaker um, and, you know, has one of the best taglines of, of, of this or any century, Ain't I a Woman Too, um, really one of the first utterances that I could think of of black feminism um, or one of the most powerful utterances, definitely not the first, one of the most powerful utterances of black feminism that I can think of. Um, we have Maria Stewart. We have Henry Highland Garnett. Of course, we're familiar with Frederick Douglass. Um, and so just kind of be aware of how the authors talk about the differences and strategies and approaches and tactics to social justice that these different people are taking. Um, for example, Henry Highland Garnett vehemently opposed white supremacy, advocated revolution to overthrow the system of slavery, and rejected the spirit of democratic capitalism and materialism. So much a little bit more of a radical, right? Um, he is also recognized of the, as a forerunner of the political militancy of the black church. Um, Garnet's nationalist ideology was a forerunner to those of Mark, Marcus Garvey and Malcolm X, right? And, and we're going to see this again and again as a theme within um, a source of tension within the black community as to what to do about racial oppression. Should we assimilate? Should we adopt the ways of the oppressor so as to be fully accepted into society? Or should we uh, separate, right? Should we have our own spaces where white people can't come, where we can have our own economies, our own communities, uh, and, and be separate from all of that, and therefore maintain and, and therefore achieve a level of equality through separation? Um, we're going to see this debate pop up again and again and again in our in our uh, multifaceted look at black responses to racial oppression throughout American history in this class. Henry Highland Garnett, right, didn't really like capitalism too much. Frederick Douglass did, right? He had much more in common, Frederick Douglass did, than uh, with Booker T. Washington and Martin Luther King, for example, than Henry Highland Garnett. And so we can trace these philosophical traditions in black studies throughout these generations of black philosophy going back to abolitionism. Mary Ann Shad Curry, one of the first women to receive the right to vote, one of the few women to receive the right to vote in federal elections before 1920. Um, and she's a journalist, right? Became the first black woman in North America to edit a weekly paper. Once again, we're not talking about Right, Mary, Mary, uh, Mary Ann Shad Carey, right, a journalist, a paper editor, Frederick Douglass, a former slave and orator, uh, who learned to read and write under illegal circumstances. Henry Highland Garnet was a was a um, he was pretty well educated, knew how to read, and and was a preacher. Right, so General Truth, former slave, didn't know how to read or write. David Walker um, died under mysterious circumstances. None of these people we would consider as like philosophers in the ivory tower sense of the word. And yet here they are given this um, kind of privileged position within this textbook that is dedicated to the, to understanding the development of this, this uh, intellectual tradition. 
And this is what we see throughout within black studies because African-Americans were uh, kept out of the academy in many ways. This is where the philosophy comes from, from like regular people, right? Not like ivory tower academics or professors. Um, and so this next, we have this next generation of, of philosophers and W.B. Du Bois, who is the intellectual inspiration for this whole textbook. We will be spending quite a bit of time with him and his ideas in this class. Um, Booker T. Washington, right, very famous black leader, um, was the one of the, the most famous black person in the world um, maybe 100 years ago. Um, maybe that was a little bit after Booker T's heyday. 120 years ago, he was the most famous black person in the world. Um, very controversial accommodationist policies. Um, we'll talk more about Booker T. We're going to read W.B. Du Bois' words on Booker T. Washington in this class. Um, I don't think we need to be quite so hard on Booker T as it might appear to be on the surface. Yes, Booker T was like, we need to pick up that bucket and work hard so that the white man will accept us. Um, you know, we definitely could see some problems with that, but he is interested in education. He is interested in entrepreneurship and, um, and, and really addressing systemic racism and really thinking about what the black community can do and thinking about black solidarity and all of these are important topics um, and important parts to this larger puzzle, I think. Um, but nonetheless, accommodationism um, is what he's probably his legacy is best known for at this point. Anna Julia Cooper, she's like a, like a female W.B. Du Bois, or W.B. Du Bois is like a male Anna Julia Cooper, um, very similar career paths um, in terms of what they're doing in their work and their educational background. I'd be Wells Barnett. Here we have another journalist. Um, maybe when we talk about Jim Crow, we'll bring up Ida B. Sorry. Sorry, I accidentally cut myself off there. Ida B. Wells Barnett wrote a book called The Red Record, where she went and investigated lynchings and really made lynchings, um, brought them out into the public eye, um, and played a big role in that. We'll talk more about that when we talk about the Jim Crow era in uh, African-American history. Um, and I'm not going to go through all these people because um, I went a little long on my podcast last week. Um, so I want to move to this last section here, starting on page 21, African-American Black Philosophy and Social Change. Philosophy is both transmittable and transient. While American philosophy and worldview did not begin with the landing of the Mayflower and the arrival of the Pilgrims, on what later became America, right? Um, American and American worldview didn't exist, right? just by itself, right? There, there's, there's a history to it. There's a genealogy to it. And uh, the same can be said of African thought as well. Despite the, Af the Europeans' denial of the equality of African peoples and the destruction of much of African civilization, there was and still exists an African philosophy distinct from that of Europeans. And, and this is the, the sort of mindset I want to encourage us to adopt in this class, right? The sort of Afrocentric mindset. The written and unwritten thought, knowledge, and wisdom of Africans has been passed down from generation to generation, going back to the, the societies of the Egyptians, Bantu, Zulus, Tuaregs, Kikuyu, Sudanese, and countless others. Here we're including the ancient African empires of Mali, Ghana, and Songhai. Intellectual centers such as University of Sankore and Timbuktu which is one of the oldest universities in the world. In fact, the oldest university in the world is in Africa, on the African continent, I think in Algiers. 
There is no reason for African-American or black people to relate solely to European or American philosophical traditions. In fact, it doesn't make much sense if you think about it from an Afrocentric perspective. It's important to know about these, I think, right? No matter if you're white or black or brown or right, yellow or red or whatever of these common sense racial categories, right, societies put you into. It's important to know about European neoclassical theory as much as it is important to know about African philosophical traditions as well. And so, yeah, this class is a counter-narrative, but also use the term counterweight, right, in, in terms of balancing our perspectives and worldviews. And so um, just kind of keep these sort of abstract principles and thoughts maybe in the back of your minds going forward. I will conclude there. Um, as I said, I do want to check in a little bit more carefully with your small group meetings tomorrow. Um, hopefully I'll be able to meet with a few of you then. All right, everyone, have a good night. Um, and I will talk to you later this week. All right, bye-bye.